0: Because I often think that the good life or success or a pleasurable existence often isn't so much in the answers we come up with, but knowing what question to ask, what task to take on. And uh, I often think that's overlooked.
1: Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Eagle Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. We are very excited to welcome our guest today, David Dunning. David is Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan, where he is Director of the Self and Social Insight Lab. His work focuses primarily on the accuracy with which people view themselves and their peers. In his most widely cited work, he showed that people tend to hold flattering opinions of their competence, character and prospects that cannot be justified from objective evidence. Work that has been featured in numerous newspapers, magazines, radio and television around the world. In a 2021 list published by Stanford University, David was listed as one of the world's 2% most cited psychological scientists. Welcome to the show, David Dunning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the questions, we're going to be talking a lot about how flawed we all are at assessing, assessing our own abilities. So the obvious question to start with is, can you share how you see your own abilities when it comes to talking about flawed self-assessments to an enthusiastic public audience, Uh, and how likely is it that that is an accurate assessment?
0: Uh, Well, uh, I refrain from making uh, such assessments because (laughs) uh, if I take my own research to heart, I'm the worst person to evaluate how good or how bad I am at evaluating my own flaws, uh, if you will. And uh, my only hope is that uh, I strive to be better and uh, tomorrow or next year I will be better. And that's what I try to do. Uh, but I just try to learn and uh, share what I learn and hope that uh, other people uh, get something out of it. That That's my promise. Uh, but I don't spend too much time evaluating what I do because I know I'm the worst possible person for it
1: makes complete sense that very consistent with your research I, I i respect that um i'm gonna i'm gonna share a couple of quotes uh and then hand over to Igor. so these are quotes that turned up in some of your uh, work david the first one was um from a philadelphia resident i'm in i'm in philadelphia right now as we speak benjamin franklin there are three things extremely hard steal a diamond and to know oneself that's that's pretty much the theme of today's episode and then connecting nicely to um self-awareness and its, and its linked to wisdom, which is the theme of the podcast, and again, from, your, um, from one of your papers, um, Lao Tzu, he who knows others is learned, he who knows himself is enlightened, which suggests how hard it is to know oneself, very much what we're going to be talking about
2: today. Right. So let me start by asking you the standard thing that we ask everybody, David. Wisdom can mean many things. What does it mean to you? For instance, do you think is there anything about wisdom that may be overlooked or perhaps counterintuitive to a uh, uh, general public?
0: Well, I think if you ask me that question on any single day, I'm going to come up with a different answer, and and mm-hmm. and I hope that's wise uh, because wisdom should mean many things. But today's answer. Uh well, in general, I would say that it really should be uh wisdom really should be about adapting to the world in one's circumstances and um choosing good uh answers uh and not worrying about choosing the right answers but if I think there's anything counterintuitive or things that or something that isn't necessarily uh isn't necessarily emphasized as much as it should mm-hmm. is Uh, The idea that wisdom isn't necessarily knowing a good or right answer. It's really knowing uh, the right or good question to ask. Mm. Because I often think that the good life or success or um, uh, a pleasurable existence often isn't so much in the answers we come up with, but knowing what question to ask, what task to take on, right? and uh, I often think that's overlooked. People just dive in into whatever it is, and they don't ask if they're really asking the right question. And, and right now, we're at the beginning of the academic year. There are a number of new graduate students uh, involved, and they're asking questions about X, Y, and Z, and they're not sitting back and asking, what really should I be asking? Mm-hmm. And that's something I think is overlooked.
2: Yeah, I, like, I like what you're saying because I also find it so challenging whenever I'm asked like, well, you say this is wisdom, but what about those outcomes? Are those wise? And I find it so difficult because you would never be able to justify things by looking at the outcomes. Because like the answers, they're always context dependent. They're always perspective dependent. And it's often much more about the process. I have another question, a follow-up to this. Many think, uh, Many people think of wisdom as being related to morality. What do you think? Do you think morality is necessary for wisdom? Or are these two concepts distinct? And if so, how?
0: Well, it, it's hard for me to think of wisdom uh, without morality. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to have some sort of uh, principle uh, in mind, or maybe it, its purpose, but uh, I'm... Uh, if I reflect on my own life, there are certainly uh, principles I live by, and I can think of them uh, as moral principles. Uh, that is, uh, I no longer practice explicitly the religion mm-hmm. that I grew up in, but I certainly take the fundamental principles of the, that were taught by that religion, and they do form a, a moral basis uh, for how I act and, and how I judge myself and how I construe wise decisions, and I can't think of doing it any other way. Uh, but I also think in terms of uh, wisdom and morality, I think thinking about purpose uh, mm-hmm. is also a very important uh, concept. Uh, one should act with a purpose in mind, and purpose is often informed by morality. Uh, what good do you want to bring into the world? And it, so, if you're thinking of the avenue of purpose, you also have to weave in the idea of morality as well. So, I, I can't imagine, uh, morality, uh, wisdom without morality. Mm-hmm.
1: That's interesting. Um, so, so getting more practical now, um, if you were going to, uh, suggest one thing that people could do that might lead to them, uh, making wiser decisions, what might that be?
0: Uh, Uh, This is uh, going to be a little bit of a stem blinder. I would tell them to read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People like I did when I was 11 years old. Now, Mm. for a very specific reason. Okay. Uh, Because if you read the book, you um, realize the book is really telling you to get over yourself Mm. and listen to other people. Step outside of yourself don't uh think about yourself always the modern terminology uh that's in fashion today would be don't center on yourself mm. listen to other people understand their perspective try to emphasize emphasize with their point of view try to gain what they understand about the world and often I find that uh, starting at 11, just listening to people, I learned a lot about the world and about life and uh, and what you right. can do. Not talking about myself, but, you know, figuring out from, uh, from other people. And that truly came from that book, which I really don't know what else was in that book. I've forgotten. But this idea of uh, don't sit on yourself and really try to see it from the other person's point of view was a powerful lesson. And, um that's really helped me sort of get a perspective on on, um, how to prosecute life, so to speak. That's That's really interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, so how did you get to to this book at 11?
0: It was around. uh, (laughs) You know, I I was in a small town. There was not much to do. Right. And uh, so uh, I, I, I picked it up. And and read it, and you know, when you're eleven year uh, eleven years old, other people are a mystery. So I thought it might right, help, right. Uh, but um, it, it was a novel idea. Actually, don't talk, listen to others, and it turned out to be a powerful idea.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I actually, vividly I, remember I, that book too. I, I was a few years older than you, I think. I was, I think, fifteen when I uh-huh. somebody gave it to me, and for me. In addition to what you said, which I also found really striking, it was this notion that people like to talk, and they just let them talk. And that was really yeah. profound insight. Yes.
0: Yeah, and you learn things, and yes. I think the and it's a little bit of a frustration because the most interesting people I know also know this. So they don't speak. They ask you questions. And so the most interesting people I know are frustrating because they just sit there and they ask me questions. And, uh, and I want to sit there and ask them questions. And so, you know, we get into this bizarre wrestling of interrogatories, if you will. But I know they're interesting. But, you know, I have to out, outweigh them until I can start asking them questions because I know they know things. And I know why they know things. Uh, but, I, uh, but I've also uh, found that that sort of opens up worlds to me. By the way, this also extends to things uh, like um, don't go see American movies. You've seen that movie. Go mm-hmm. go see movies from other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll learn things. Uh, don't read you know books that are from mm-hmm. a genre uh, you've read before. Read other genres um expose yourself to other worlds it's the same principle you know step outside of yourself center on someplace different
1: i heard uh recently of a google engineer i think who made an app where he was he was aspiring to do the same thing to step out of his own sort of uh familiar routines and the app would order you an uber at every time the same day and take you to somewhere random in the city Ooh. which you didn't know beforehand you just get in and off you go <laughs> um, so it sounds kind of terrifying but it would definitely get break you out of your familiar pants
2: definitely terrifying it depends <laughs> on the city that may or may not That's be true. the safe uh, thing to do
1: uh well it would lead you to different
0: experiences no may, they may not be pleasant experiences but That's at least it true. would be different experiences
2: yeah yeah, I, I take that back. I think, like in most cities, well, I mean, you can probably block some areas, but yeah, no
1: blocking, no blocking well, allowed. Well,
2: no well, blocking you know, this, allowed at all. Okay. Yeah, this
1: leads this leads me back to
0: your first question about what's counterintuitive. Uh, uh, you, you know, often life is about what question you ask,
2: mm.
0: and I was thinking about this because uh, it, it used to be the it used to be that if I went to a new city. You know, the question I would ask is, okay, what are the museums? What are the restaurants to go to? That's right. the question everybody asks. And now the question I ask uh, at the hotel or whatever is, where do the locals go? go? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a more open question, but it's actually going to tell me more about the city if I, if a person can tell me this is where the locals will go. Now, maybe the locals don't want me to go there, <laughs> but it gives me more of an experience of the place than. Um, the standard places where tourists go. But but basically, your experience of a place Mm. uh, isn't the answer to the question. It's really Mm. what question do you ask? Mm
2: -hmm. Mm. Okay, so I have another uh, question. Among our wisdom questions, we have one that is not about the individual psychology, but about something else, namely... What could we change on a structural level about our communities that would lead us to make wiser decisions as a society?
0: That's an interesting question because I have an an answer that I don't know if it answers your question. (laughs) All right. And it's everybody should be on a jury in a legal case.
1: Oh,
0: Oh. Oh, interesting. And what does that mean? It's because uh, being on a jury in a legal case Forces you to be in a situation that matters. Uh, it forces you to work in a group. Um, it forces you to talk and think things through. Um, and often, people who are on a jury consider it to be one of the most significant experiences mm-hmm. uh, in their life. Mm-hmm. And but really, what it is is it's a group experience. It's a group project, and um, it's a significant one that's on offer. And people should take it. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm disqualified from it. I, I teach psychology and law. No lawyer is going to allow me to be on a jury. That, oh, that's just really? the way that's it is. Is uh,
2: that? Yeah, right? be, I didn't know that.
0: Oh yeah, be, uh, no lawyer wants me on a jury. Um, <laughs> now e- every lawyer wants the other lawyer to exclude me. That's that's the game mm. of chicken that will be played. But I can be in <laughs> mock juries. I can't. Uh, but no, I won't be allowed on a real jury. I'm I'm too dangerous. But, uh, but I was thinking about this and a lot of, let's say, any wisdom I think I've, uh, I've acquired really comes from groups that I mm-hmm. was involved in where we formed. and We were really on our own to do whatever project we did. And this was usually, usually during my teenage years. So mm-hmm. uh, I was in theater groups. We did plays. Um, uh, I was in a mime troupe. We did our own shows. Mm. Uh, We came up with our own skits. Um, uh, uh, I was in junior achievers, and so I was in different companies. Uh, I was in a company that published a weekly Mm. newspaper, and I did the ads. And um, Mm. one year, my company did a weekly radio broadcast and so forth. Mm. But it taught you how to do projects, how to be organized, uh, how to deal with people, um how to be a friend how to deal with uh, interpersonal conflict uh, how to deal with freeloaders how not to be the freeloader mm. um uh, how to how to do it yourself and and I, I i think about this um there there was a lot of wisdom that came from those experiences and i, I think we do live in, in more of a bowling alone society if you mm. know the yeah. Robert Putnam book mm. and Uh, I do worry about that. I actually do worry about our educational system because often it's based on individual work and individual achievement. But a lot of adult life really depends on working in groups, but we don't train that. We don't train that form of wisdom. And uh, I found that training and that wisdom to be essential uh, when I was growing up. And maybe it still exists, I don't know. But I have found that activity to have been essential for my life and uh, also some of the best friends and some of the best experiences I had when I was young Um, but uh, that would be my answer so I don't know if it touches upon wisdom but uh, I consider it to be a a segment of wisdom that matters and so that would be my answer
1: that's really really interesting Um, I want you know one of the problems obviously with group one of the things teachers will say about group projects is they you know they prefer to work with individuals cuz it's easier for grading that often it's often it's about the grading the other end of things you know rather than like what would actually be better um so yeah that's a tricky part of it
0: Oh, I know. That's exactly why we need to do things in groups. <laughs> right, right. That's a, that's. A, uh, I would argue that yeah. is an argument for why we should be yeah. doing groups. Yeah. yeah, and and by the way, in medical education, medical uh, uh, there is a movement in medical schools to mm. do more group based training uh, to do. Th- um, Case-based training, where you just throw a medical case, uh, a mock medical tra- uh, case, at a group, and they have to solve it, because it uh, more matches what the students are going to face mm. in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem uh, problem-based uh, instruction, and uh, uh, and that seems to me to be more wild and woolly. But so is the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. You yeah. speak, speak about that in in one of your papers, I think, uh, yeah. as a, as a, a better way of kind of doing things in terms of rather than, you know, the classic model of just like learning a bunch of facts individually.
0: Oh, that's absolutely right. Because the, the problem in terms of learning is not only learning the facts, but you also have to learn how to apply the facts. Right. And that's often a step that is left out of education, uh, because just learning the facts, you can leave a student very satisfied. Mm. It's the application uh that's important. It can certainly leave the student not very satisfied, mm. but once they master that, uh, you can leave everybody satisfied. Mm.
2: I don't think group projects will probably have a comeback with generative AI because there will be i mean I already see now that when I was thinking about how to Change my syllabus, my curriculum for uh, the next half a year for the courses I'm teaching, be it undergraduate or graduate, but especially undergraduate, I just cannot do any of those singular activities that students can do at home because there is no way to check. And uh, group projects seem to be one of the natural things that you sort of gravitate Mm -hmm. to, even though they're harder to grade, but at least uh, there will be some kind of sense of accountability because students will probably will not be as tempted or maybe they will use it differently but anyway so that's my one of my probably in highly inaccurate predictions but, but uh, probably some of the group projects will be coming back
0: <laughs> well well don't tell the students in my class yet, but that's actually one of the things i'm going to do uh, for some short papers that in my graduate class i'm going to ask the students to present their paper to chat GPT and have a conversation with it uh, <laughs> yep. in an interactive way. So that, that'll be the group project. And then after a few weeks, uh, they'll start having conversations with each other. So instead of doing individual papers, um, right. chat GPT is going to be a member of the group. I've actually suggested that ChatGPT actually do a presentation in our, in, in our Brown bag. If you remember that Igor, um, uh, no one else is going for that, but I think we absolutely have to have chat GPT as a speaker. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but in, in chat GPT might be a way to produce more interactive, um, uh, activities, uh, with our students. And so I, I, I wouldn't,
2: uh, there is a w- potential, w- yes. Yeah, there's a
0: potential. The only problem with ChatGPT is it's just too damn polite.
1: <laughs> yeah. Should you get some sort of plug-in where you ask it to pepper pepper its responses with expletives? Uh, <laughs> I, uh,
0: uh, that, I, I think I would like that, actually, as yeah. an activity. <laughs>
1: as you said david i was on a jury and i do consider it one of the most important experiences of my life um yeah it was very ennobling and it sort of especially as we can be all quite cynical about the uh legal system it was actually like oh this is an extraordinary process like all these people coming together trying to find out the truth um it seemed very uh even these sort of even though you imagine it's adversarial, actually both sides of the, the, uh, the case seem to be trying to get at what actually happened here. Anyway, I really liked it. So yes, I, I would thoroughly recommend it. Um, and I've also heard of people going to extreme lengths to get out of jury service, but I think your move of, of getting a law degree just to get out of jury services, is, is, that's pretty extreme. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, well, yeah, uh, th- that would be pretty extreme. Right. Uh, because it wouldn't be very satisfying. Mm-hmm. True.
1: OK, so um, I wanted to ask a few questions about uh, some of your work and start with you know, the very uh, the, the sort of centerpiece that a lot of people will be familiar with of your work, um, which is the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I wonder if you could just super briefly tell us what it is and its implications for education and the workplace. I mean, it applies in so many areas. So We just tried to pick a couple that, that might be the most relevant.
0: Sure. Uh, I guess I would define the Dunning-Kruger effect, as it's come to be uh, called, as the fact that uh, those who lack expertise lack the expertise that they need to recognize what expertise they lack. (laughs) Or rather, those who don't know are not in a position to know what they don't know. That is, to know what you don't know, you first have to have knowledge mm-hmm. of what you don't know. And and those who don't know are just not in that position. Uh, so, uh, or another way to put it is we all make decisions. We all make the decisions we think are the most reasonable. Mm -hmm. Not all the decisions we make are the most reasonable, but we're not in a position Mm -hmm. to recognize their uh, unreasonable nature. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I should mention that Justin Kruger and I did not name it the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, It was named somewhere in um, the Internet, and I've asked Chad GPT to t- identify the moment at which yeah. it was named the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it told, it, it told me it was me, and I told it that I, <laughs> it wasn't me, right. and, it, 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 and it apologized profusely. Right. Uh, but too polite. I'd, love, I'd love to know who named it the Dunning-Kruger effect because just I my article pink that <laughs> our family names are forever going to be associated with ignorance, incompetence, <laughs> naivete, gullibility, and the like. But uh, its implications are that um, people who are incompetent or inexpert are just simply not in a position to recognize it. Um, They're confident um, in themselves uh, because they're not in a position to recognize that Mm -hmm. uh, their confidence is not justified. They're just not in a position to recognize it. It's not ego. Right. They're they're being honest. They just can't recognize Mm -hmm. it. And that's also true in education. I mean, students who uh, think they're ready for the test, but they're not, mm-hmm. honestly, yeah. think they're ready for the test um, and, until they get the you know the the cru- uh, crushing feedback. Right, and uh, that,
1: that's the effect. That's interesting that you, you you made the distinction. It's not about ego. It's just these people don't have access to the information that they need to make a, a better informed decision. That's right. Um, what about the workplace? Um, you know, Obviously, the implications for education seem pretty clear, but um, uh, for people in offices and labs uh, across the country, um, how might this play out?
0: Well, it plays out uh, in a number of ways. One is that people may apply for jobs or try to go into professions that they don't have the skills mm-hmm. for or don't have preparation for. Um, it may mean that uh, people um, uh, maintain a level of work that they think is fine, and maybe uh, they should get promoted when, in fact, they're nowhere near that level of work. In fact, um, there is work showing, and this is, this was work done in the Navy that uh, uh, people uh, naval officers officers' beliefs that they deserve a promotion was uncorrelated with whether or not they actually got a promotion, Mm. whereas other people's impressions of whether or not they deserved a promotion actually was highly correlated with whether or not they uh, got a promotion. um, So that uh, people may not improve because Mm -hmm. they don't know that they need to improve. So uh, – uh, there, So there may be a uh, lack of uh, human capital, as the econ- uh, economists mm. say. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't improve. They don't acquire skills because they don't recognize that there are skills that they need to acquire. Um, and this may happen at the individual level. It may also happen at the organizational levels. So mm-hmm. uh, medical labs, for example, may mm-hmm. be putting in mediocre performance because they literally don't know higher performance is possible mm-hmm. uh, in terms of medical mm-hmm. outcomes.
1: Hmm. that's really interesting i mean i'm kind of also would love to know whether it breaks down uh, across gender like my hunch obviously not <laughs> based on nothing um but but you can guide us is um that it might turn out more in men than women maybe um so that's one question i, I was interested in and also like you know cross-culturally what does this look like again the hunch might be individualistic cultures we might see more of it than collective cultures but uh you know a couple of distinctions that i'd love to to hear your thoughts on
0: yeah in terms of gender uh the picture seems to be a little complicated in that there are some skills that are gender identified that is um like science uh, when you think of a scientist you tend to think of a man and so men tend to think more of their uh, scientific talents than women do. And once you hit kick, that kicks in, well, then uh, men will tend to overestimate themselves more than women will. But there are some things, like verbal skills, that women will tend to um, think better of themselves than men, and then things will start to flip, even outer flip, for example. Um, in terms of culture, it's interesting because we have some global data From Mm -hmm. the TIMS, the Trends in Math and Science Studies that's done uh, every four years with uh, 8th graders and 4th graders are tested out globally on math and science. And not in terms of individualism versus collectivism, Mm -hmm. but uh, there is a cultural dimension that's uh, referred to as long-term versus short-term orientation. Long-term orientation is what it is. It's people th- thinking in terms of uh, long t- long time horizons. Mm-hmm. And short-term uh, uh, oriented uh, cultures tend to think about the here and now. Mm-hmm. It turns out – now, uh, actually, uh, as background, I should mention the Dunning-Kruger effect should be impervious to culture. Uh, the theory is cognitive. It is um, – mm-hmm. if you don't have skill, you just don't recognize you don't have skill. Turns out there's something culturally going on um, between long-term oriented cultures and short-term oriented cultures. And the first thing that's going on in long-term oriented cultures is that long-term oriented cultures emphasize math and science. Those students do better. By the way, overall, they think they're worse in math and science, Mm -hmm. subjectively. It's interesting. They do the best. They think they're worse at it. Uh, but they um, they do better and they do better enough. The, the worst math and science kids in long-term oriented countries know enough to know that they aren't doing very well compared to everybody else. Uh, short-term oriented, those kids aren't doing very well. Um, the second thing that's happening with long-term oriented countries is their teachers are very happy um, to give them try I put it, corrective feedback about their um, math skills or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. And so they're more aware of when they're performing poorly. So this doesn't track with individualistic cultures mm-hmm. or collectivist cultures, which is the opposite end of the poll. It does track with this, do you have a, a long-term orientation, which means you're not really worried about, who you are in yourself, who you are now. You're worried about the self that you're going to be in the future, and are you going to improve into that? Mm. Uh, what skills you're going to have in the future? Mm. Um, and that, that those those kids, when they're performing poorly, know that they're performing poorly. Uh, short-term oriented cultures are more concerned about their self-image and their mm. reputation, and mm. they tend not to know when they're performing poorly.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. And and, I'm at, is the U S short term oriented? Is that, that'd be a guess. Uh,
0: It tips that way. It tips that way. (laughs) And but yes. And uh, teachers don't give a lot of negative feedback.
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the, the things that if I was talking about this effect with friends, I'm sure this idea would come up that, you know, not knowing that you're bad at something might be helpful to, um, make you take have the courage to take the steps on a path to actually learning a new skill and if you were you know really acutely aware of how bad you were at something you just might never try new things um what are your thoughts about that
0: uh it's interesting because um uh not knowing you're bad may make you complacent uh so it's a double edged mm-hmm. sword Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think you're already good, you don't really work that hard. Right, right, right. And so you don't become good. Um, But if uh, you know you're bad, you know you have to work hard, you uh, work hard to become good. The key there, though, is do you think you can become good? Right. So it becomes a little bit of a Carol Dweck Mm uh situation, uh, do you think if you work hard, will you become good? Um, that is, will you grow? Um, through effort, through scheming, uh, will there be growth? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that um, uh, if you're bad, you're always going to be bad. It's fixed. That's it. It's over. It mm-hmm. really is. What theory do you have about what mm-hmm. hard work and scheming will will bring you? that that's uh that's really uh the key and by the way that's also a characteristic of long-term oriented cultures Uh they're very much into a growth mindset that if you work hard you will improve that that seems to be a feature that's associated with those
1: cultures that's interesting so it's not so much about where you're at that will determine it's what it's about like if you put in work can you move that it's where you're going exactly yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. right um, there, there is some, um, research that's come out recently, which, um, some researchers have said, you know, if you account for X, Y, and Z, they don't see the Dunning-Kruger effect turning up. I wonder if you could talk us through some of these kind of misconceptions and like what's going on there.
0: Oh, well, uh, it is sort of interesting because, um, uh, there is some work, um, uh, my take on it is that it's somewhat repetitive, Uh, uh, making the claim that the Dunning-Kruger effect is just merely a statistical artifact, Mm -hmm. uh, which is regression to the mean. Uh, That is that um, we know that um, people's perceptions of their ability is not perfectly correlated with reality. So if you look at people who don't have much skill, by definition, their perceptions of themselves can't be that extremely negative. And people who have really good ability, uh, under regression of the mean, mm-hmm. they uh, can't, their perception themselves can't be that extremely positive. Mm-hmm. So it's a given that you're going to get uh, um, uh, you're going to get the Dunning Kruger effect, and that's all it is. And uh, uh, my take on it is that, um, well, uh, what you've just done is re-describe the Dunning-Kruger effect, but you haven't explained the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, That is, um, uh, you can make that claim, but that is critiquing maybe the first two studies we did in 1999, but in the almost 25 years since, there's been a lot of studies that have gone far beyond that. In fact, we did um, uh, a nine-study, a series of pap- uh, a, a paper with nine studies in it in 2008 that exactly looked at is this merely a statistical artifact and found that uh, it wasn't. Um, there was a paper that uh, came out uh, a couple years ago that looked at the um, explanation I ga- uh, gave at the beginning that the those who aren't in the know mm. uh don't know that they don't know uh mm-hmm. or are worse at judging the quality of their answers and showed that it did play a role in the fact that people at the bottom did misjudge themselves more so there's positive evidence of that mm-hmm. um there's just a ton of there's a ton of work since our first two studies that's showing that it's not merely a statistical artifact and um uh uh it's uh, the argument that the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect is just a, a statistical artifact is interesting for a number of reasons. First, it only looks at the first two studies, mm. but it, it doesn't really consider the 25 years of research since. Second, there is a research on progression to the mean. And the, uh, the people who critique the Dunning-Kruger effect never reference this mm. independent research mm. or uh, literature. And we've done, you know, we've looked at this uh, literature, we've used techniques from this literature that it doesn't explain our effect. Um, and actually um, uh, we've, uh, in some sense, those who um, claim that the Dunning-Kruger effect is just a statistical artifact are asking the wrong question uh, in one way to describe their claim is that the Dunning-Kruger effect is, is, is that it's just statistical noise. And if you uh, use measures with lots of statistical noise, you get the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, but that's not the way to test their account. Uh, the way to test their account is to come up with a measure that has zero statistical noise and see if you remove the Dunning-Kruger effect, hmm. which is something we've done. And when we do it, we still get the Dunning-Kruger effect. So, Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one of the things you mentioned is, uh, sorry to go on, but uh, uh, one of the things you mentioned is, uh, are there a ton of misconceptions about the Dunning-Kruger effect? And one of the interesting things is that the Dunning-Kruger effect is about getting things wrong and not knowing you're getting things wrong. But one of the interesting things uh, about uh, the effect is a lot of people have misconceptions about the effect or misdescribe the effect and don't seem to know that they're mis- describing the effect.
2: <laughs> <Pretty> so,
0: <important. laughs> uh, what are so, your
2: favorite examples?
0: <laughs> well, my favorite examples, and I don't know if they're favorites is that <laughs> often the, the effect is described as the, uh, ignorant or the incompetent are the most confident people in the world. No, we didn't say that. We said that they're, they're overly confident relative to how poorly they're doing. They're not as confident as top performers. Yeah. But given how poorly they're doing, they shouldn't be as confident as they are. But some people have morphed that into they're the most confident people in the world. Right, right. Um, The second um, is if you Google images of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I did this yesterday. Mm -hmm. The picture you get is um, 19 times out of 20 is nothing – that we actually did uh, you get this curvy worthy thing mm-hmm. where uh, which is about time and being a beginner which mm-hmm. is about when you're a rank beginner you're not very confident but soon you become wildly mm-hmm. confident and then you suddenly realize you shouldn't be so confident so suddenly you have despair and you're less confident mm. and then you rehabilitate yourself and you become more confident so you get this uh, wavy line and it's a beautiful line <laughs> um, uh, it's actually a very complex it's very plausible uh, it's more interesting than anything we ever proposed in 1999 um, it's actually the Gartner uh, uh, Gartner hype curve by the way it's mm-hmm. people's confidence in new technology is okay. really what it is uh, but it's not the Dunning-Kruger effect now uh, it turns out that we've actually studied whether confidence when you're beginning beginner actually follows this curve Mm -hmm. and happily i can report this is what happens when beginners start a completely novel task Mm -hmm. Uh, we had um, uh, uh, participants uh, online uh, enter a post-apocalyptic world where (laughs) america was being overrun by zombies And uh, we're were nothing if not fashionable. (laughs) And uh, uh, because their supervisor had to go to the CDC, they were left to diagnose uh, zombie diseases on their own. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't know exactly how to do it. They had to learn, Mm -hmm. but they're going to get feedback after every case, whether they were right. But they had to go through 60 cases and diagnose. Was this a person healthy or did they have a zombie disease variant? And through the 60 cases, people learned. But what was interesting is they started off very unconfident about their diagnoses. Mm -hmm. But after 10 or 15 cases, suddenly they were bursting with confidence, Uh well over how well they were actually doing. Um, And after a few more cases, they weren't so sure. Hmm. Um, They began to realize they were making errors. Uh, so their confidence leveled off, decreased a little bit, and then after a while they began to an uptick in their confidence again. So we got something that looks like what you what you will see if you Google the Dunning Kruger effect, but which is something we actually never talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is something that we uh, talked about called the beginner's bubble that beginners start cautious, but then mm-hmm. their confidence far outruns. Uh, any actual increase in performance people think they've got it far sooner
1: than they've actually got it right so you kind of you 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 know you know nothing at the start then you like you leap to thinking you've got a model that explains it okay i get how this works exactly And then you find out oh no that it's that model isn't quite right it's a bit more complicated exactly interesting
0: and by the way that matters because there's something in aviation called uh Uh, the killing zone, uh, which is Mm -hmm. uh, beginning pilots know uh, they're in danger and they don't commit mistakes that will lead to Mm. uh, injury or fatality. But roughly around 600, 800 flight hours, they begin to make those mistakes Mm -hmm. because they begin to be in that beginner's bubble or that killing zone. Mm. They begin to relax. And so it's not rank beginners Mm -hmm. who are – a danger to themselves and to others, but those with a little bit of experience and mm. air force flight instructors know this, that's what they tell their trainees all the time. Mm. Um, you, you are not a danger, but you will be a danger.
2: <laughs> a little learning so, is a dangerous thing.
0: Oh yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: So I want to switch gears here a little bit. I continue talking about uh, the misperceptions, but, um, switch a little bit from the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, to broader self-assessments. So it seems like while the Dunning-Kruger effect suggests poorly skilled people are the worst at assessing their abilities, um, in fact, all of us are pretty flawed when it comes to making self-assessments. David, can you talk us through some of the reasons we are so poor at this supercritical skill?
0: Well, uh, there are a number of reasons that, that switch depending on the the type of skill that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, um, assessments of competence and there are assessments of character, uh, competence, uh, the problem there is that, um, uh, there's so much we don't know. And, um, what we don't know is simply invisible to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the classic phrase now that's permeated into the culture is that there are unknown unknowns, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. They're, they're just invisible to us. We, there are more possibilities, more risks uh, out there. We just don't know. Uh, plus uh, you know, our thoughts and beliefs are contaminated by misbeliefs and they're going to lead us astray. And that, they seem reasonable to us. They are plausible. Mm. They just happen to be wrong. That's, that's the issue of competence. Uh, in terms of character, I mean, moral judgments or uh, ethical judgments or self-control judgments, uh, the issue there is we um, overbelieve our ability to uh, be captains of our own fate. Um, mm-hmm. We're uh, much more buffeted around by circumstances mm. than we think. Um, uh, this is the classic fundamental attribution error, uh, if you will. We think we're in control when it really is the environment that is in control. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And um, that leads us to um, succumb to temptations or to not be the better angel we thought we were when uh, the moment of truth comes. And uh, so it's these sorts of perceptions that lead us to... um, Overly rosy views of ourselves is, right. um, the objective self doesn't uh, uh, map onto the subjective view that we have mm-hmm. about ourselves um, but this, the specific reason why we uh, we have over beliefs about ourselves depends on what's the exact context or what the what 's the exact uh, circumstance that you're talking about
2: well it's interesting that you mentioned this kind of uh, role of being masters of your own destiny and so on. I guess I right away think, again, about the cultural differences you brought up earlier about this kind of more long-term oriented versus short-term oriented people, people potentially uh, thinking about it in a more holistic fashion and consider the various contextual factors, which you by necessity have to do when you are thinking about the long term. There's many more things may come to mind. Uh, Do you think or do you have evidence that these people could potentially be beyond the Dunning-Kruger effect, less susceptible to uh, this type of uh, self-assessment biases?
0: Well, I think they're beyond the Dunning-Kruger effect only because it's not an individual thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, People aren't allowed to be uh, captains of their own fate. Um, That is, their society trains them up. Right. So they escape the Dunning-Kruger effect because they're not incompetent, and, and so or if they're if they are we, uh, they're weak, more weakly skilled. They're skilled enough that they can see it, but also uh, their environment makes sure that they know, if you will. I mean, these are cultures that post yeah. how well each and every person, what each and every, how well each and every person is done publicly oh. by name oh. in the classroom. As opposed to the American situation where it's illegal Mm -hmm. for me to make even one step toward making everybody's um, uh, scores public um, in any class that I teach. In fact, if someone calls me up and asks, is so-and-so in my class, it's illegal for me to say yes or no. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's American law. Mm -hmm. So, oh, yeah. Uh, i'm glad i i'm glad i i do know that
2: uh, <laughs> i should check if it's true in canada but nobody called me i i don't think i have a phone anymore maybe they could send me an email I mean, like I should check well in american universities
0: they have people so you don't get that call uh, <laughs> i see that uh, but uh, uh but yeah, yeah there there are just cultural differences in terms of how much people are going to know I, no i once had a um, so there, there are differences in terms of, you know, our students going to get corrective feedback? I once had a undergraduate from Singapore who had a conversation with me because she was absolutely mad that she could not get her American college professors to give her negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And so she, uh, she was spitting mad, and then she glared at me. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I, and I kind of wanted to explain – I'm from the Midwest. I've Mm. been giving you feedback, but it's in Midwestern code. Mm, Right. You may not understand it. The opposite culture in this regard. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Midwest is honest, but you have to know the code.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have a follow up question to this. Um, What does this widespread lack of self-awareness actually imply for the field of psychological science? Um, where we have so many measures, so many—I mean, the majority of our field is based on self-assessments, self-reports, and especially as we move towards more online studies in the last fifteen, twenty years, um, how can we rely on them? Can you rely on them? Uh, well. well
0: I'm- I, I, th- I think there are some places where, you know, um, you can rely on them because people be blatantly honest about uh, who they are and what they are. I mean, mm-hmm. the classic case is Machiavellianism. I mean, you can go to a person and say, you know, are you Machiavellian, you know, a schemer, a user of people? And Machiavellians are very happy to tell you yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are some places like, um, okay, do you engage in self-deception? Yeah, a self-deceiver is going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the last 10 years, there have been a number of people measuring intellectual humility. And uh, an intellectually uh, humble person, yeah, is going to boast about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a group who's recognized that might be an issue. Uh, so I think because of this, you really do have to be mindful if you're trying to gauge individual differences or personality, a, a personality difference as to whether this is a place where people will be honest, because people will be honest, surprisingly, mm-hmm. or if it's a place where you really need to move from a self-report to a self-performance like right. uh, give people a chance to reveal that they're intellectually humble or reveal that they're self-deceptive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there is a, a growing recognition that there are some uh, personality differences where you have to give people a chance to reveal themselves through performance as opposed to uh, just uh, saying things about themselves. Well, this, this has been long known. Yeah. Um, for example, in terms of um, asking people about racism or sexism, um, uh, you just don't ask. go up to a person and say, hey, are you a racist? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are other places where you have to adopt uh, something a little bit more subterranean and clever to really find out uh, where this person stands.
2: I find it uh, was... In my experience, was often is tricky. Be it for instance about intellectual humility or other sort of cherished qualities. Like when you ask those things very abstractly, I often don't even know where to start, how to assess it, because I don't keep a logbook of me uh, indicating every single time how I acted, whether this was intellectually humble or not, so I can create some kind of a profile analysis mm-hmm. on the spot about how I am. In terms of my intellectual humility in general, it's not part of our everyday vocabulary. But
0: oh no, you know, I th- yeah, go ahead. One, no, I, oh, I think it's true. It's also the case that for some people, uh, they may come from a, a family or a culture or a setting where they don't define it as a no. thing. It's just what, just no. what people do. Now, it is intellectual humility, hmm. but they don't define it as a thing.
2: That's right. You don't so, ascribe uh, like uh, give a label to it.
0: Uh, yeah, it's so- just it's just what people do.
2: Yeah, so exactly. So what I find is like, instead of asking people who they are in general, overall, without any context, if you like put it in a particular situation and ask them, what did you do? And give them a set of characteristics. And you just like reflected on those. That seems to track it a little bit better. I mean, it's still kind of yeah. self-report. But uh, that's which makes some sense, at least in terms of empirical evidence for me. Oh, no, I agree with that.
1: Um. I was going to go to our final question. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, we've been speaking about, um, you know, flaws in self-assessments. The theme of the podcast is wisdom. Um, now, some sort of self-knowledge, knowing thyself, is pretty central to wisdom. Metacognition is a key aspect of it. Um, so what can we, having discussed this, what what can we do to improve our self-knowledge? It seems like, like you know, Benjamin Franklin said, It's as hard as steel. He didn't quite say that, but I like the way that I put that. Um, So what can we do to improve our self-knowledge and as a consequence, um, maybe become wiser? Well,
0: um, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about uh, lately is uh, toying around with the idea that um, in some sense, failures in metacognition are inevitable and overconfidence is inevitable in particular uh, because we always think, we're, go- we're always going to choose to do what we think is the most reasonable thing to do. Right. And um, so uh, there are going to be failures. The real question is how do we manage those failures? Hmm. And maybe the answer has been there all along and it isn't there in terms of an individual thing, but it's always been there in terms of how professions choose to manage overconfidence in the decisions of uh, the individuals within the profession. So, uh, for example, in aviation, overconfidence is handled by making sure that pilots go through their checklists. They have no uh, discretion. Right. And in the law, uh, at least in the American uh, tradition, uh, Anglo-American tradition, um, you make sure dis- uh, legal decisions are better calibrated, more just, more true, by making sure everybody sees both the prosecution side and the defense's side, or the plaintiff sides and the defense's side. You see the pro case and the opposition case, uh, so um, you both get c- the confirming case and the disconfirming case,
1: hmm.
0: and that's very important uh, hmm. in order to weigh through the evidence. Uh, doctors don't make diagnoses, they make differential diagnoses. They don't ask oh, what's going on, they ask what's going on and what else could be going on. Right, mm-hmm. And then they shave off, uh, they do disconfirmatory tests, if you will. Mm-hmm. And all these professions are, if you think about it, all these procedures are being done in order to uh, stave off overconfidence and to come to uh, better decisions. Uh, they're really there to uh, to come to better decisions and to uh, ward off overconfidence. So I've been playing around with the idea that uh, if you... Oh, in science, uh, of course. Mm. If you, um, as I do, think of science not, uh, mostly as a profession that at its heart is a profession of, its, of assassination. <laughs> that is, you have an idea... <laughs> You do a study that you collect data to see if you can assassinate your idea. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. It does your you put your idea through an ordeal to see if it survives a data test. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's at the heart of Mm -hmm. Popperian approach to science. Uh, It really data collection is is an act of disconfirmation, or or you have to at least have that in there. Uh, so if you if you sort of borrow um, principles from the professions, um, that can help uh, instill better metacognition and maybe improve decision making, mm-hmm. um, uh, because uh, one there are going to be metacognitive errors. Um, one way to think about it is what are the best practices that I adopt to manage, minimize mm. and manage those errors. Mm. I think it's the way to think about it. And right now the idea I'm playing around with is what can we steal from medicine, the law and, mm. and aviation and whatnot.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're, you're saying it seems that the professions have not tried to really get to the root of it. They've just come up with a practical way of avoiding when it does go wrong rather than trying to, you know, solve it at the base like or it's he- going he- to happen he- yeah
0: headed headed off at the pass yeah. yeah yeah and if you take a look a lot of what they say uh, looks like it was reinvented by psycho- psychological research mm. uh judgment decision making and elsewhere uh but uh, uh but the, the that's sort of uh, the game i've been playing with is what can we learn from the professions in terms of what to adopt as individuals in our everyday life
1: and what would if you've been thinking about this a little bit, what would be a couple of examples of like what that might look like for um for an individual who's just trying to sort of know themselves better in their day-to-day life?
0: Uh well I'm uh, uh I'm I'm trying to th- uh, okay, so uh I won't go into d- details, it's a graduate student having interpersonal difficulty mm-hmm. and is sort of leaping to a conclusion mm-hmm. today. I sat down sort of like a doctor and said, okay, what are the three most likely scenarios of what's going mm-hmm. on? Mm-hmm. So I didn't leap to, Oh, this is what's, play, what's mm-hmm. you know, that is the high base rate thing. But I said, okay, there are two other possibilities I have to rule out before I go mm-hmm. in and, and uh, start talking to people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I acted more like a doctor trying to make a diagnosis rather mm-hmm. than, um, uh, uh, than a, uh, a quick acting. I've got other things to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, academic, um, who has a issue that I, I need to address. The thing about aviation is that it's a repeatable event, and yep. you have to have a repeatable event. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, aviation, uh, it it works, but you know, I bet there are a lot of things that are are not as cut and dried as it may sound as well. So I'm not surprised.
2: Right. Yeah, and it's it's more of a, a structure. It's a technical. It's a set of technical checks in addition to. It's. It's not just like focusing on debiasing your cognition or your metacognition, which is, I think, a very different type of beast than checking all the uh, devices uh, on the plane. Oh no, that's, that's exactly
0: right. That is, you, what you'd have to do is you'd have to do some study about you know, where do errors occur. Yeah, um, uh, where the most common errors occur. Um, it, and you also have instruments that are designed to already sort of head off those errors as well. I mean, aviation has something like a hundred years of right. heading off error to begin before you even get to a checklist. I mean, if you want to know, okay, where has um, errors in judge, w- which area has done the best in um trying to prevent errors in judgment. It's aviation. Mm -hmm. But uh, they've been at it for 100 years, and they've spent billions and billions of dollars on equipment as well as human psychology Mm -hmm. in order to head things off. And so, yeah, the checklists checklists already have an easier job. Yeah. And medicine, I was sorry, I was just going to say,
1: medicine has famously not been so good at improving its error rate. Compared to aviation, yeah,
0: it? I'm I'm going to disagree on okay. that. Well, okay. no, it's better, right? Um, but uh, I'd have to say it's um, uh, it's only recently that it's really integrated uh, error management into its teaching, okay. and some mm, of the okay. errors, I mean, but some of them are pretty blunt. Like um, I remember once I was having eye surgery, and my uh, eye surgeon came in. And had a nice conversation with me and then he ended it with, Oh oh, by the way, it's your right eye that we're operating <laughs> on today, right? <laughs> that and I good. went, yeah. yeah. He went, okay, good. He signed my, you know, my face on the right eye. And then I recognized, oh, that's because there's a literature on wrong side surgery. Hmm. This whole conversation was to make sure it was my right eye. This was an error check. Hmm. This is to make sure he, he operated on the right the correct eye. And uh, okay, that, if that's where medicine is at, I mean, it's late to the game, but at least it's
2: at yeah. the game. <laughs> it could have been a very cruel joke. Uh, right. Right. You know, winding you well, out. There, there's a literature on it, uh, but
0: uh, it's now being incorporated into their training in the last 20 years. And so mm-hmm.
2: medicine is stepping up to the table. So I'm impressed. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, We learned so much. We wanted to have you for so long. uh, And then the pandemic came in between. And Mm. uh, finally, at last, we could learn from you about the metacognition. You've been an inspiration for me for many years, including uh, ways to improve wisdom measurements. And I'm genuinely glad we were able to get you.
0: Well, um,
2: I'm glad to make the
0: connection. I've been an uh, admirer uh, of both and uh keep up the good work and um keep up with the podcast